All right, we are now starting Second Peter and welcoming not everybody here in the room, but everybody that's listening online right now. We're just glad that you're with us. Uh, we're only going to be covering the first two verses tonight because we're going to be doing some setup and some intro uh, into this book. Uh, but the fact that we have already studied First Peter and just finished that actually will be a big help for us. Uh, I'm going to, as we look at Second Peter, I'm going to make a statement that actually seems kind of like an overstatement. But this is Peter's second letter. Now, some of you would say, well, <laughs> duh. But actually, go to Second Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 1. I'm only saying it because Peter says it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. All right? So the reason why I'm saying do this is Peter's second letter is it's his second letter, and he says so. But as you see, if this is his second letter, most likely the hearers of this letter will be the hearers of the first letter, which we saw. And we're going to get to that in a little bit, and that will help us with what God wants us to see as we begin to break this down. Um, who did he write his first letter to? Did anybody remember from our study? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. He wrote it to the strangers of the world, the Christians who were scattered. But look closely at where they were scattered. They were scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right. Now, this is the area of Asia Minor. But I want to pull out a little interesting tidbit that as I was just kind of looking at this, that kind of jumped out at me that I'd never put together before. Um, we see that they were scattered in these areas. And look again at the names. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Go with me back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, we see Peter preaching at Pentecost. Look closely what goes on here, though. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and look, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And I just started thinking as I was looking at who these people were that Peter was writing to, not only in his second letter, but in his first letter, I wonder if some of his hearers of his letter to the Christians there in Pontus and Galatia and so on, were some of those same people who happened to be there at Pentecost when the Spirit of God came and Peter preached and 3,000 believe, and those people who were staying in Jerusalem might have gone back to their areas wouldn't it be kind of neat and a strong possibility that the hearers of these letters were people who were there when Peter preached at Pentecost? Yeah. That's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. We don't know it, but it's a possibility. All right? So he's writing to the people that he wrote to in the first letter, in 1 Peter. But when did he write it? Actually, most likely between 65 and 68 A.D., the reason we know that it's around this time is uh, Peter was put to death in 68 AD under Nero's persecution. So we know when Peter died. So it had to be written, of course, before he died. And also was written after 1 Peter. So sometime between 65 and 68 AD is when he wrote this letter. Now, Peter's purpose for writing this letter was different than his purpose for writing the first letter, writing 1 Peter. Uh, when he wrote 1 Peter, his purpose was to encourage the believers in their dealing with persecution from outside the church. Here in 2 Peter, though, Peter's warning them of dangers that are going to arise from within the church. Now, there's a lot more to this, his purpose for writing, but I'm not going to take the time in our intro tonight to deal with that because it's going to come out in the study. All right. And so for right now, just keep in mind that in his letter to the in the first Peter, he was dealing with persecutions that would arise from outside the church. Here he's dealing with things that may arise from within the church. And you'll see that in a little bit tonight and as we go into our study. So 
that's your basic introduction. That's all we're going to do for intro purposes. I want to take our time tonight to really look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Peter. So let's see what it says here. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, typically, when we read a book of the Bible or even start to study on our own, we'll read that little beginning and then we'll get into what we think is the meat of the letter. As you're going to see, if you read that too quickly, if you read it too quickly, you're going to miss out on a lot because actually his introduction here lays the foundation for where he's going to go in the whole book. And if you haven't taken the time to look at it, you may not see it. All right. But if you look closely, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and tell me the difference you see in his introduction of how he describes himself between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Can anybody see the difference? He added servant. He started the 1 Peter letter by calling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here he describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he adds that he's a servant. Actually, the word servant's not the best translation either. It actually should be translated slave. Almost 90-something percent of the time that you see the word servant in the Bible, it should actually say slave. And that's the word that it really, really should be used. Now, slavery is not like back then it wasn't what we see it today. And actually, slaves would sign themselves up to be slaves. They would intentionally offer themselves, and they were treated very, very well. And the, the masters of the slaves, who were good masters, actually took real good care of their slaves. And so the term slave we hear, is, and that's unfortunately what happened, is the slave term slave had a bad connotation. And so translators, in just about every translation, have changed it to servant. But it really doesn't give the picture here that, that God really wants us to have. And he says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think it's any accident, by the way, that Peter has changed how he described himself between his first writing and his second letter. I think part of it, as you will see, is the fact that God has been doing a work in Peter's life. As he gets closer to the end of his life, and by the way, as you'll see when we get to it in this letter, he realizes that he's very close to the end of his life. God has already made clear to him that he's going to die. He even says, and we'll get to it in that time, that he knows he's about to put off the tent of this body. But as he got closer and closer to the time that Jesus was going to take him home, the work that God had preordained to do in Peter's life was being accomplished. And he's becoming more and more the man that God wanted him to be. And it looks subtle to you, but I want you to see this more as just mellowing with age. This is more than just Peter's mellowing with age. Too many people would say, well, hey, you know, he's, you know, he's getting older, he's near his death, all this. No, no, no. Actually, what he writes about in this book, I think, is the reason why the things that Jesus has been working in his life and teaching him is the reason why he could add to him his, his description, a servant of Jesus Christ or a slave of Jesus Christ. Go ahead, Allison. Verse 2 tells you why. Exactly. Well, we're going to get there. You're jumping ahead. <laughs> but yes, verse 2 does tell us why, and you'll see. Jim, you'll see that. Yes, sir. Why, why did he uh, introduce himself in First Peter as Peter the Apostle and in Second Peter as Simon Peter? be honest with you, we can only speculate. But going back, and we're not going to take the time to do that, because I've already done it a little bit in, other, in our other study. If you remember, back when Jesus first met Peter, his name was Simon. And Jesus said, you are Simon, and you will be one day called Peter. And then in Matthew 16, we see that he makes his profession of his faith, and Jesus says, you are Peter. And he's known as Peter. Yet, later on in Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon. I, uh, Satan has asked to sift you wheat, and I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And if you remember my teaching on that before, Jesus wasn't having a senior moment where he forgot <laughs> that he had changed his name to Peter. It was intentional because you'll see in that passage that it was intentional because he used it to get Peter's attention that he wasn't there yet. You know, you still got some vestiges of Simon, the new you that I already see. And in my eyes, you're the new you. It's not there yet fully. And he called him Simon to get his attention. But when he pointed out Peter's soon-to-come failure and denial, and Peter says, oh, I'll die for you. Jesus says it in a wonderful way. You can go back and double-check in Luke 22. He says, I tell you, Peter. 
When the, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. And that's such a wonderful picture. So my speculation, Duke, is that in this, along with this servant or slave of Jesus Christ, he realizes, I'm still Simon Peter. I'm his project. I'm not there. And there's a chance, because we see this in Peter, don't we, throughout his life? He thought he was there a lot. He had the answer. Whenever Jesus asked a question, he was going, ooh, 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 I know, I know. And he was usually wrong and usually way off. And there's a chance that earlier in his life, he actually said, apostle. But as God's been doing his work, he's reminded, I'm still Simon at times. Yes, he sees me as the finished product, but he's still working on me. Remember that song? God's still working on me. Remember that one? I think that's my answer to your question as to why. Go ahead, Jim. I, I just say one other thing, though, that uh, what always impresses me is he always gives a definition of himself. So although he's going through these troubles, he knows and he is grounded. Yes. And the point I'm making is, is he says, and apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's not bouncing around and saying, maybe I am, no, maybe no. I'm not. He's not concerned with his reactions or what he does as to who he is. Right. He still realizes he's called of God to be an apostle. Yeah. You were starting to say something over here. I was going to say, he's, uh, it seems to me, looking at the two introductions, the two, this is who I am, he's gained a little humility with his maturity. Yes. Oh, and by the way, you're going to see that in our study. Yes, sir. Bill. Uh, also, in First Peter, when he says, uh, to the strangers... Could he be meaning people I've never met? So he's introducing the authority he has. Without question. To them, I'm an apostle and uh, authorized to speak the truth of Christ to me. I would agree 100% with that, that that's a part of why he says an apostle, and he still says it here. There's an element of authority that is lacking in our churches today because we have allowed the mindset of the world to creep into the church. I don't know if we realize it, how much we have Americanized Christianity, especially in our churches in America. And the, God has designed roles. There's an equality in the eyes of God, but there are different gifts and different roles, and there are levels of authority. We hate that idea. And so we have tried to give everybody an equal vote. But there's an element where he was by God to say, I'm an apostle. I have been given some authority. I have a job to do, and you need to listen to me. And so there's an element there for sure, I think, is part of it because he's saying to those he hadn't met. Yeah, you know, in Acts 2.42, it says they met and, and they uh, fellowshipped and then they uh, come up under the... Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Which there was no writers then. Right. What, the what they said was the word from God. Without question. Now, like I said, some may call this change between 1 Peter and 2 Peter, a mellowing with age, but I see it as something more powerful. It's, I see it as God's spirit within him. What I want to do real quick, and I'll get right to you, Rick, what, is I want to have us just read, I'm going to read for you, verses 3 through 11. We're not going to break them down, but I want you to, in the context of what we're saying here, I want you to listen to verses 3 through 11, that we're going to spend a long time in verses 3 through 11. I'll tell you now, we will be in verses 3 through 11 for many weeks. But you're going to see in here a key to why he, we see the change. And before we read that, do you want to say something? Go right ahead. I'm just going to add that the, the same characteristic was observable in Paul's writing too, where he, he first referred to himself as the least of the apostles, than the less than the least, and in his last book, he wrote chief of all, chief sinners. of all sinners. That's correct. That's an. In, I actually heard a, a pastor preach on that one time a while back, and he took and he wrote. He explained to us when this book was written, what time in history, and he walked them through. And he took you from Paul's earliest books to his latest books. And each of those, Paul does the exact same thing. He starts off with, "I'm an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles, but then chief of sinners." The longer you walk with Jesus, the less you'll. Put importance upon yourself. Again, like I've told you before, don't follow any leader who doesn't walk with a limp. All right. But now listen to what Peter says in verses 3 through 11. We're not going to get into it tonight. But listen to what he says with this in, con in this context. He says his divine power. 
God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him, who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, He's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, what I just said to you was, just in his introduction, we see there has been growth in Christ, in Peter. And then he writes to us and says, oh, by the way, if you're saved and there's no growth, you either, one, have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your past sins and you are a project of Jesus Christ, or you might not have it. You need to make your calling election sure. But he then, and we'll get into that later in our study, says, make every effort to add to your faith all these things. In other words... Folks, you're going to see as we look at this that Jesus has begun a work in us. And we think that we're saved and praise God, we'll just hang on until we get to heaven. Uh Uh-uh. There should be change. There should be transformation. Someone came to me uh, today after I finished preaching and he, he said, how can I pray for you? What specifically, what one word can I keep in my mind to pray for Jim Johnson? And as I sat there with my mind going 100 miles an hour, the word growth is the one that came to my mind because of what God's been showing me in preparation for this study. I said, I want you to pray for growth. Pray for growth in my walk. So let's go back now to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is writing to believers, as we have said, but I love how he describes the believers he's writing to in this introduction. I paraphrased it here, but he, he describes them as those who, to those who through Jesus' righteousness have received faith. Now we'll break it down some more in a little bit, but let's just take that first section. To those who the righteous, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a precious uh, faith as precious as ours. He says to those who through Jesus' righteousness have received faith. Now, some of you are going to say, Jim, why are you going to go through this again? Um, you're going to see Peter say the same thing. It's good to remind you of some things. And I want to take some time tonight to remind us of some truths that upon hearing them afresh and anew, maybe God may help them to really sink in even more. You see, it'll do us good to remember that our salvation, our righteousness comes solely from God and not from us in any way at all. Now you say, okay, I get that. Well, let me ask you if you really get it. Are there times that you feel guilty, feel like less of a Christian because of your sin? Where does your righteousness come from? Jesus alone. Now, does God care about our behavior? Yes. Is he going to be working on us to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ? Yes. But when you think, oh, I'm less of a Christian now because of your sin, You haven't fully understood that your righteousness and your salvation come solely through Jesus alone and not on your your actions. Go back to Romans chapter 3. Put a bookmark here in uh, 2 Peter and go to Romans 3. I want you to see this from verses 19 through 24. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. 
But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, the Scripture says that God's law was intended by God to show us our sin problem. He did this by having us try to meet the righteous requirements of the law on our own effort. Isn't that what he said? Here's my law. I want you to keep it. Here are my commands. I want you to keep them. And did not the hearers of the law set out? They even said in his presence, everything you have said, we will do. God says, good luck with that. <laughs> I know something about you that you don't know. It doesn't change how I view you. I love you more than you would ever know. And the fact that you are unable to keep what I just said doesn't change that fact. But I need you to go try and keep this. See, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Through the law, you become conscious of sin. Oh, there's also something that Paul points out to us that you might not have understood. Not only are you incapable of keeping the law, not only are you incapable in and of yourself of any righteousness, once God gave you the law, it fueled your desire to sin. Paul says this way. He says, the power of sin is the law. In other words, what gives sin its gas <laughs> is the law. What is the fuel for sin is the law. Paul said, I didn't even know what coveting was. So the law said, don't covet. Now all of a sudden, I got a coveting problem. You know how it is. You might be fine, but as soon as someone says you can't, wish you hadn't have said that. You know, now I want to. You understand? Keep off the grass. Keep off the grass. <laughs> uh, there's, there, my, Nicole's not here tonight, uh, uh, but um, our daughter Nicole is about to go into UCF. And there is in their student union building, in the center of the student union building, this logo of the horse Pegasus, which is the symbol for the UCF Knights. Around that logo is this rope. Because the students are told, never, ever, ever walk on the logo. There's a superstition that says, if you walk on the logo before you graduate, you won't graduate. <laughs> and at graduation, they walk across the logo to receive their diploma. Or they receive their diploma and walk. It is a part of the tradition. You don't walk on it ever until your graduation, because if you do, you might not graduate, but at graduation is when you get to walk across the logo. You do not realize how hard it has been for me not to just go in the middle of that rope and do a dance. <laughs> but you're from FSU. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not worried about graduating. Even if I was a student there, I would find a way to say, I don't care about your superstition. But at the same, isn't it interesting though? I didn't even think about walking across that until they put those silly little rope and said, you can't. Now it consumes me. I have literally been thinking of the ways that I can get across it, visit my daughter, and run across just to say I did. It's only a rope. Yeah. But you know what? The law fuels our sin problem. And the law was given for many reasons, but one of them to show us that we have a sin problem. You cannot produce righteousness in and of yourself at all. You can't do it. But let me show you a couple of things. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 10. Let me just kind of lay this foundation a little bit more. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. After he just said in verse 9, which, What shall we conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. See, we understand this. For those of us who are saved, we understand this for salvation. We can't save ourselves. We need Jesus. But for some reason, Satan has convinced us that it's up to us to still be pleasing to God. Go to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. We already read it, but I want to remind you, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. 
Yet, don't you think that God will answer your prayers when you've been good as opposed to when you've not been good? I do. And since I'm such a better Christian than y'all, y'all must feel that way too. Do <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Bride's a sin, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I've always told people it ain't bragging if it's true. But, uh, but, but, but here's what I want you to hear. Listen, we still fall into that mindset, don't we? We feel like God won't hear because I haven't been good enough. Now, yes, our behavior does affect how our Father deals with us, but it never changes His love for us. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 4. I love this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, you got to stick with me here. Because what we're going to be doing here is going to deal with some of the false teaching that started to creep into the church. And we're going to get to that tonight. So you need to understand what we're saying here because it will really help you understand how the false teachers took what we're reading here and began to abuse it and twist it. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature or the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then later on, he goes in verse nine and says, you, however, are not controlled by the flesh, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you. So in other words, he says, the righteous requirements of the law have already been fully met in you. Now, that's something you need to know. But you also need to be careful because there will be those who will take this truth and they will teach things that aren't true. And you'll see that in a little bit. See, once we realize our inability to live righteously, we hopefully become aware of our need of righteousness from somewhere outside ourselves. Not only that, we realize our need of mercy along with the gracious gift of righteousness that he, God, has, has given us. See, we, we love to talk about God's forgiveness. Have you ever thought about his mercy? I mean, because not only has he graciously given you salvation and given you life and given you righteousness when you didn't deserve it, what did you deserve? Death. What do you still deserve? Death. Death. But guess what? He not only gave you grace... He gave you mercy. He gave you mercy. Oh, by the way, you know who he didn't give mercy? Jesus. 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 Don't ever fall into thinking that the price for your sin was not that much. The Bible actually says, and I can't even fathom this. I'll be honest with you, this hurts my head. That all the sin of the world was heaped on Jesus Christ. He became sin. Can you even fathom what that must have felt like to holy God? I can't even fathom it, folks. And yet, after beginning in the spirit, we try to perfect ourselves in the flesh. So sin's what killed you. Sin's what killed him. The wages of sin. Sin is what killed him. Yes. Sin took his life. The cup of wrath. He drank it to the full. Think about this. We keep falling into legalism. Sets of rules. Because we think if we set the right rules, if everybody follows the rules, we can control their behavior. By the way, what do rules do to us? They make us want to sin. Yet we think if we get the rules right, everybody will behave. We just need to get the right people in office. And we just need to change our laws in this country. And if we just changed our laws, everybody would be good. Folks, get over it. It doesn't happen. 
Oh, you're going to find that out, by the way, because the Bible says at the end of the church age comes the last seven years for the nation of Israel. We know it at the tribulation. After that is done, Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom on the earth. And the Bible says Satan will be in the pit for a thousand years. Will there be sin on the earth during the millennial reign of Jesus? Yes. Yes. The Bible says that he will rule with a rod of iron. Why would he have to do that? That's because there still will be rebellion. There still will be sin. Can't blame it on the devil. Flip Wilson will be out of a job. (laughs) But then at the end of that thousand years, what's going to happen? Satan's going to be released and he will be able to gather an army beyond number to fight against Jesus. Folks, let me just tell you, we can make righteousness reign on the earth and all the laws be righteous. Because at that time, if Jesus is really in reigning and we're reigning with him, the laws will all be righteous. But it won't bring righteousness. Do you understand that these dispensations, these time periods in the earth have been for a purpose? God is teaching us something in the age of law. He's teaching us something in the age of grace. He's teaching us something in the millennial reign. He's teaching us something. There's no righteousness apart from God himself. So don't fall prey to that mindset that says, if we just did a little better... I've given up trying to fix the church. It's actually happened this week. No, I'm serious. This sounds like a joke, but I'm serious. It actually happened this week. I was actually riding in a car with my brother as he was talking to someone on the phone yesterday. And as he was dealing with church troubles, clear as anything, God spoke to my heart and he said, Jim, stop trying to fix the church. First of all, he said, I will build my church. And second of all, the church will be broken and messed up until the new heaven and the new earth. Until I come get them. Jim, you confess that you've given up fixing the church, but in reality, the Christians should give up fixing themselves, period. Yeah. I've never... We, we've got to stop trying to fix ourselves. We need to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. What, what you say, I'll do, and it will come out good. Go ahead, Teresa. Um, uh, sometime in the last year, my son was standing up for me, trying to protect me from my daughter. <laughs> um, he thought that she was taking advantage of me. Well, he, the thing was, she wanted to use my computer. I was not using it. No problem, use my computer. So I thanked Michael, and I said, thank you for sticking up for me, protecting me. That's what a man should do, protect women as well. I said, but it's my computer. It's really none of your business what I do with it. And God said, Teresa, it's my church. It's none of your business what I do with Yep. We've made certain things our project, and we think we're being righteous because we're going to fix it. In this world... You will have trouble. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Hear that again? Each day is going to have trouble. You know, I've been trying to fix my family. I've been trying to fix my dad or my mom. I've been trying to fix my situation. And Jesus said, let me do that. You follow me. Oh, I may even use you to have some growth in some of these areas. You might even see some changes in some churches. You might even see some changes in your family. But stop trying to, with this mindset of, if I get it all set up right, it will be fixed. It's not only not my job. Most likely, by God's design, it won't be fixed. (laughs) Because what is the purpose? What's he showing us in each of the dispensations of history? (laughs) There's a need for him. Whether it's law, whether it's grace, whether it's righteousness of Christ, you need him. So let me just tell you, take a deep breath. Don't worry about tomorrow's trouble. Rest in today and stop thinking that your job is to fix it. Yes, ma'am. If we get in the way by trying to fix it, we're getting in the way of what he's trying to do in the other people's lives. 
There's lots of things. That's one of the ones for sure. Think about Peter swinging a sword to defend Jesus in the garden and how silly that looked. But in his mind, he was doing what Jesus said. He had just said, sell your coat and get some swords. Yes, sir. Rich. I heard uh, Henry Blackaby talking in one similar vein. He said the Lord smote him by saying, by, by him reading, and he saw himself, uh, Jesus saying, Father, forgive Henry because he doesn't know. <laughs> yes. I'll be honest with you. This is, this is transforming for me because those of you know, my job is to travel around and speak to churches. And I've tried to fix them. Exactly. My job is to proclaim his truth and let God take it from there. All right, let's keep moving here. We are deserving and still are of death and punishment, but God gave us mercy and grace as well. Ephesians chapter 2, we're not going to turn there. Verses 1 and 9, you can go look at it later on. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And God, who is rich in mercy made us alive, made you alive. Remember, your righteousness comes through Jesus alone. But not only that, that's why he describes this salvation as precious. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. I'll be honest with you, I have a hard time with the word precious. I'm a guy. <laughs> my wife will think she's being nice to me when she says you're sweet and I'll go doesn't help <laughs> I don't want to be sweet it was never my intention to be sweet I know you mean well but say something else <laughs> precious no not precious either thank you precious doesn't do it either but so for yourself and for myself if the ladies are precious is good with you, that's good. Uh, for me, that means special. Yeah. Something incredible that we've been given. It's to be treasured. Uh, but do we? Do we really treasure our salvation? Do we really daily have a mindset of, wow, I'm in Christ? Yeah. Or do we... As too many people say, and you've heard me say, saying, hanging in there, doing the best I can. That's why Peter's about to teach us about adding to what we've been given. And I'm not going to get there yet, so I've got to stop. But he also said something else in here before we move on to verse 2 that I want to pull out. To those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as whose? That's another problem in our churches today. There are some people that think that God has more love for certain people in the church than others. Unfortunately, as a pastor, I've had to deal with this too much. People think that God loves me more because I'm a preacher. He doesn't. Did you hear what Peter said? You've received the same kind of faith I have. The faith you have is just as special as the one I got. And I'm an apostle. Big whoop. That's my role. That's the job he's given me. But I don't think I'm better than you. You've received a faith as precious as Peter and James and John and Matthew and Paul. Let's be honest. Most of us have never really thought that way, have we? We're just glad to be included. I just put me in the back of the bus. I'm just glad to be on the bus. No, you've received a faith as precious. Now, does God have favorites? No. But listen to me. Charles Stanley puts it real well. He does have intimates, though. And that's not by his choice. That's by your choice and my choice. I want you to become individuals who come to realize that you've received a faith as precious as Peter and James and John and so on. And that you become not one of his favorites because he doesn't have favorites, but you become one of his intimates. Look at verse 2. He then says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. I almost wonder if he's trying to top Paul a little bit there. Praise says grace and peace, and, Paul said, and Peter says, but yours in abundance. No, actually, uh, he's wishing the same grace and peace for his readers that Paul often did. 
But he also says something here, as we've dealt with grace and peace before in other studies. He also says something here that's setting up where he desires to go in this letter. He said, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, you can't miss that word knowledge. That is going to be the key of where we're going to go for a while. I want you to actually see that he uses this word knowledge a lot. It's just a short little letter of three chapters. But look at here in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge, again, of him. Look at verse 5. For this reason, very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Look at verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 18. Last book. I'm sorry, the last uh, verse in the book. But grow in grace, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. There's no accident here that Peter is using this word knowledge. There are those, and I'm one of them, that believe that Peter was having to deal with the very beginnings of Gnosticism that were beginning to creep into the church. Now, the New Testament, and I'm going to show you some places, all the way through the New Testament, the New Testament writers were dealing in some way or another with this Gnosticism, this false teaching that was creeping into the church. Now, the Gnosticism did not reach its full level and measure that it did until after our New Testament was written. But I believe that it was already beginning and beginning to creep into the church. And you even see Jesus deal with it a little bit in his letters to the churches and warning about about compromise and false teaching that were being brought into the church. And so I want to take some time right now to deal with what is Gnosticism. And I want to talk to you a little bit about it, because some of you probably have never been to seminary, and you probably never heard the term Gnosticism very much. Gnosticism is a heretical false teaching that crept into the church, like I said, in its early years. This false teaching took biblical truth and twisted it just enough to teach things that were unbiblical. And by the way, you're going to see that in all false teaching. All false teaching takes some truth, but then extrapolates it with human reasoning that it now becomes unbiblical, and they start teaching things that the masses believe because it sounds good, but if you know the Scriptures, you realize, wait a minute, what he just said can't be true because that contradicts the Scriptures. Yes, that's what Satan does. Actually, that's what Satan did when he was talking to Jesus when the temptation in the wilderness, and he quoted from Psalm 91. Oh, he only took part of the verse and twisted it, but he had a teaching for Jesus that he, of course, because he knew the scripture, because he wrote it, uh, actually was able to refute. He is it. He is it, exactly. So let me give you an example. We know that the scripture says that we have been made alive in our spirits. You've heard me talk about this, Evan. Remember? Well, I'll just show you. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. All right? Your spirit has been redeemed. If you've been born again and God has saved you, He has washed your sins away, He's put His spirit within you, you've made, been made alive in your spirit. Has this affected your body? Really? No. Not really. In some sense, you're going to see in a little bit it does. But for the most part, it hasn't really affected our bodies. As you've heard me say, your cholesterol didn't drop. You didn't lose any weight when you all of a sudden got saved. It didn't have an effect on your flesh in that way. So you're right now living in a body that your spirit is made alive and your spirit is alive, but your body's still dead because of sin. The Bible talks about that. Well, the Gnostics would take that teaching, which is scriptural, and they began to teach that all matter is evil. Anything that is matter is evil and can never be made good. Only the spirit is really good. Now, in and of itself, we might say, well, I kind of go that way. Yeah, the world's all going to pot and my body's falling apart and only the spirit's good. And, and, there, you know, and Paul even said, there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh, but... The problem with that is, listen to what they said. 
They took a truth that there is a wrestling match going on between our bodies and our spirit. And they said all matter is evil. So therefore Christ is evil. Did you catch that? Jesus took on a human body, did he not? If he lived in a human body like yours and mine, he had sin. Oh, he lived in a human body like yours and mine, but the Bible says, yet was without sin. So what I want to do real quick is I want to talk to you a little bit about this Gnostic idea. This is one branch. There's lots of levels of Gnosticism, and you're going to see just a few here. The word Gnosticism comes from the word, Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. They thought they had a special knowledge. Oh, and by the way, they thought that salvation did not come through faith in Jesus, but by receiving this special knowledge. Once you understood this special knowledge, you were then enlightened and you were saved because you understood the difference between matter being evil and the spirit being good. And once you had that special knowledge, that's what real salvation was. It wasn't through faith in Jesus. It was through you receiving this special knowledge. This is why Peter is saying, you need to have a knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to add to your faith knowledge. You'll grow in the knowledge of Jesus all the way through. He's talking about a biblical knowledge. So they taught, and we're not going to go there because we already understand that Paul understood the struggle in Romans 7. Things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus who gives us the victory. But they took that truth and made it into an unbiblical teaching. And like I said, they said that Jesus, well, there were two branches of how they're going to deal with the fact that Jesus had a body. One branch, the aesthetics. Actually, we'll come back to the aesthetics. One branch uh, called the Decetics said that Jesus didn't really have a body. You see, because they have to deal with this teaching that they've now come up with. By the way, when you have a false teaching, that's what you're going to have to do. You have to come up with some more trickery to kind of make it all fit together. And you come up with more lies to cover your previous lies. Then what did Mary birth? Well, here's the thing. (laughs) Jesus, they said Jesus didn't really have a body. That's where the word descetic comes from. It's from the Greek word deseo, which means to seem. They said it looked like he had a body, but it wasn't a real body. Can anybody help me from Scripture... To refute this. How? Sixth chapter of Romans says this. It says, uh, For if we are united together in the likeness of his death, Mm -hmm. certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Something had to die and something had to rise. Right. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Right. Now, okay. So we know from our understanding of the scriptures what this is saying, but one could say that doesn't say that he had a body. There we go. What about Thomas? was nailed to the cross. Well, it, 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 you know, there's lots of ways to do mirages and things like that and holograms and all this kind of stuff. But let's use scripture. Again, this is, what, this is where I'm going. I'm doing this for a reason, folks. You are living in a day, and I'll get right to you, Rick. You are living in a day in which actually it might not be Gnosticism, but false teaching is abounding right now. There are preachers all over the airwaves who are writing books, who are famous, who are taking a little truth to Scripture, and then they are extrapolating with human reasoning and teaching things that are unbiblical. You need, you can't just say, well, what about, you got to say, look what the Scripture says. We're not to argue, but we're to know what the Scripture says. And we're going to get to the Thomas passage in just a second. Go ahead, Rick. In 1 John it says... Um to, to test the spirit and any spirit that says that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh is not of God. Did you hear that? That's one of the best ones. First John chapter 4, by the way. Test the spirits to see whether or not they're from any, any spirit that says Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Oh, by the way, um, John was dealing with Gnosticism. 
That's why he said what he said. I'm sorry? Well, again, one could argue whether or not he was pretending to be hungry. He's been manifest in the flesh. Very good. Let's look at a couple passages some of you have, looked, have talked about. Go to John chapter 20. Look at verses 24 through 29. Now, at this point, Jesus had already appeared to his disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. Verse 24, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then, of course, Jesus says, blessed are those who have believed by not seeing, but you've seen and believed. But there's an even better passage. Go to Luke 24. Luke 24, I think, is one of the best ones. And I love how you brought that out, Rick, that John said, look, anybody says Jesus didn't come in the flesh, don't listen to it. By the way, there are teachers out there that will say Jesus wasn't really God. <clears throat> they call themselves Christian. They'll say he wasn't really God. Luke 24, look at verses 36 through 43. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Can't be any clearer than that. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still do not believe it, because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? <laughs> they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Those of you that were talking about the eating. That man of my own heart. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? This is why you need to know the scriptures, because the Gnostics would say, well, all matter is evil. There's a wrestling match between the flesh and the spirit. All matter is evil. Therefore... Uh-oh, what are we going to do with Jesus? Well, he, he just seemed to have a body. Others said that actually, and this is the, uh, uh, the group called the Corinthians, they actually said that Jesus took on the, the Spirit of God, entered him at his baptism, and left before he died. Yes, ma'am. Did they say all matter was evil so that they could continue to sin? Because the body That's one of the ways that people did it. There's then, but because of now dealing with us and how to deal with all matter being evil and our flesh is being evil and our spirit being good, there were two branches of that. One was the ascetics, and they would treat their bodies harshly because all matter is evil. They would starve themselves. They would beat themselves. They would treat their flesh badly in, a, in their way of showing matter's evil, my spirit's good, but I'm going to beat my flesh. You know, Martin Luther did it. Martin Luther did it. But go with me to Colossians chapter 2. A lot of you may not know it, but part of Paul's writing to the Christians in Colossae was dealing with this, was dealing with this Gnostic teaching of asceticism. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. So since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The other group, they said, since your body is matter and all matter is evil and never will be good, and our spirit is what is good, we can do whatever we want in our bodies because our bodies are always going to be bad. Remember, didn't we read that the righteous requirements of the law have already been fully met in us? Therefore, if the righteous requirements have already been fully met, those Gnostics would say, because of this, those of us who have this special knowledge, we can do whatever we want in our bodies because... It's always going to be bad. It's not me. It's my body. 
Let me show you two places where the Bible had to deal with that and writers of the Bible had to deal with that. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 10. Remember, he's writing to Christians and he says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he, Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Doesn't mean you don't sin. He said you don't keep doing it. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Do you see it? Here he's saying, and dealing with this false teaching of the Gnostics of, you can do whatever you want. No, you keep sinning. The true believer won't keep sinning. Why? Because the Spirit of God within them is conforming them into his image. Or if you walk in continual disobedience to the one who's within you, he'll take you home early. You're not going to keep on sinning one way or another. But you know what? We in our churches, when we start dealing with God's grace versus legalism, one of the reactions of the legalists is, we can't tell them about grace. We can't tell them what the freedom they have in Christ because they'll run amok. <clears throat> Scripture says the one who's truly been born again, they won't, keep, they won't abuse it. They may even try for a time, but they won't because God's able to deal with them or the Spirit of God within them will be able to control them. We don't need our rules to control them. The Spirit of God within them. One last place. Go to Jude, verses 3 and 4. I always wait for someone to ask, what chapter? <laughs> and I love to go, you don't know the book of Jude. Jude, verses 3 and 4. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share... I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. I really believe that part of the, one of the main reasons that Peter was writing 2 Peter, as you're going to see in our study, was to stimulate them to wholesome thinking. And in so doing, he will deal with two issues. One, growth as a Christian. And combating false teaching that was beginning to already creep into the church. And folks, I said it before and you'll hear it again throughout this study. We're living in a day in which false teaching is escalating rapidly. The Bible said it would. There'll be doctrines taught by demons. And the sad thing is, without realizing it, most, and I'm sad to say this, but it's true, most Christians, and these are true Christians, most Christians in our churches today have been falling prey to it and not even knowing it. And the reason is, they don't know the Word of God. You need to know the Word of God, and you need to take serious this precious salvation, this special salvation, this treasured salvation you've been given, and you need to make your calling and election sure. You need to add to your faith, make every effort through the Spirit of God to allow Him to make the changes, and we're going to begin to look at what those mean next week. But listen to me, encourage you with verse 3. His divine power has already given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. We have a knowledge it's through His Spirit and through His Word. And as we go through this study of 2 Peter, my prayer is that each of us will experience that growth that God has for us. And I also pray that you'll be better equipped to be able to combat the false teaching that's out there so that as you're listening, you'll say, wait a minute, that's not true. That doesn't line up with Scripture. But if you don't know the Word, there's a lot of things that people are saying that sound real good and you won't know that it's not true. And I can't be with you all the time. And I don't want you saying, well, I believe what Jim believes. That'll get you in trouble too. 
that'll get you running across the logo at UCF with me in the middle of the night. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for this chance to study your word. Thank you for how much is here in these two verses. And Lord, to be honest, there's more. <laughs> but for what you want us to look at, this is just where you want us to be tonight. And I thank you for it. Lord, I pray that you uh, stir us in our hearts to wholesome thinking, to obedience to your truth, to a hunger for your word. Give us a desire for your word and your truth. Lord, keep us from becoming Pharisees that think we've got it all figured out. Keep us from dealing with false teachers in a way in which we are on a witch hunt to actually go and attack certain individuals. Lord, throughout your word, you, we see that as you dealt with the false teachers, you just said, here's some of the things they teach. But you never really name names. So, Lord, I just pray that in this study that we would be learning to recognize when your spirit is speaking to us, to recognize truth from falsehood, truth from error, truth from lies. And, Lord, you might even change some things that we've thought we've believed over the years. And I thank you for how you've done that in my life. And I pray, Lord, that I, too, if you tarry, would be recognized as someone who more and more people see you instead of me. I pray this in your name. Amen.